Uh, I'm pleased to bring the subcommittee uh, together today for our first uh, meeting of the year. Um, uh, our first hearing today is going to be on a critical topic, U.S. policy on Yemen. I'll, and the, I, I and the ranking member will make some opening remarks, and then we're eager to begin a discussion. Um, just uh, two weeks after he took office, uh, President Biden said this, uh, this war has to end. He called the war in Yemen what it is, a, quote, humanitarian and strategic catastrophe. Those words from an American president are long overdue. It's a recognition that the United States has aided and abetted a war for years that has caused untold uh, suffering for millions of Yemenis and has undermined U.S. national security interests. Um, I first sounded the alarm on this crisis back in 2015. Uh, at the time, very few people in the United States Senate knew anything about the Yemen civil war. But today, that I'm hopeful, uh, I'm hopeful that our participation in, in this national security cataclysm is coming to an end. President Biden has announced an end to all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including relevant arms sales. He has reversed the designation of the Houthis uh, as a terrorist organization which threatened to cut off humanitarian aid to millions. He has resumed aid that was suspended by the previous administration to northern Yemen, and he has, of course, appointed uh, Tim Lenderking as the special envoy. We're honored to have him here today. Uh, he is leading the U.S. diplomacy efforts to end this war. Uh, Mr. Lenderking is off to a fast start. He will talk to us about that today, but America needs to supplement its diplomatic efforts by properly using its leverage with the parties to the conflict. It was the right move to suspend arms sales to Saudi Arabia and to conduct a review of sales to the UAE two months ago. Today, I will be honest, I am concerned by recent reports that the administration may be moving forward with portions of these sales. I would urge that any determination of offensive arms sales to these two troubled partners take into consideration some key factors, including the recipient's past record uh, and whether the arms or services in question were previously misused or could potentially be used offensively in the future, especially against civilians or civilian infrastructure. Frankly, the track records of these two countries in that respect are not good. Recent reporting suggests that the administration intends to move forward with the sale of Reaper drones to the UAE. The Emiratis uh, already have a record of illegally transferring weapons to Salafist militias in Yemen. And Congress, uh, frankly, has not received sufficient assurances that such transfers will not happen again. It's true that UAE has, for today, suspended its military operations in Yemen, but things change fast in the Middle East. And let's be honest, we cannot know with certainty what nations in the Middle East are going to do with the weapons that we've sold them. That's why we've never sold F-35s or weaponized drones to anyone except for Israel in the region before. But make mo no mistake, um, my call for more pressure on Saudi Arabia or UAE to bring this war to an end doesn't ignore the malign Houthi behavior in Yemen. They are guilty of war crimes in this conflict. They recruit child soldiers. They deliberately hold up aid, don't allow it to get to the citizens that are under areas of their control. Senator Young and I have called on the Houthis to urgently stop their offensive in Marib and avoid the needless death and destruction that would come from a protracted battle there. The Houthis need to come to the table, just like the Yemeni government and the Saudis. But if we can get the warring parties in Yemen to agree to a peace deal with their Saudi and Iranian backers supporting such an agreement, it could 
provide the grass shoots for a new regional security architecture in the Gulf. The past few years have seen nothing but escalation between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and it's my view that all of us would be better served by a detente between these two rather than a continuing endless escalating cycle of violence by proxy. Yemen provides us with a test case for that theory. Um, finally, a word uh, on the humanitarian crisis. The situation is still nightmarish, as the special envoy knows for Yemenis. So we need, one, uh, for donors to step up and provide the funding that's needed to fulfill this year's UN appeal, which is right now dangerously underfunded. Two, we need to resolve the blockade that is restricting fuel deliveries to Hudaydah. While a handful of vessels have been able to berth there, those supplies are only a Band-Aid. They only will last a few more weeks. Fuel it is a lifeline in Yemen. It's critical to power hospitals, ensure the provision of food and access to water, and generally help alleviate the suffering of the Yemeni people. There's just no excuse to deny these life-saving fuel imports any longer. And the Saudis, they need to lift this blockade. And the Yemeni government needs to issue the permits to let the goods get through. Uh, with that, let me turn to the ranking member for his opening remarks. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, for our first subcommittee hearing together. I, I'm looking forward to uh, working with you on this subcommittee. Uh, I want to express my gratitude uh, for you holding this first hearing uh, on uh, the topic of Yemen. Um, it's a place that's occupied a great deal of our attention and concern for a long period of time. I'd also like to thank today's witness, Special Envoy Tim Lender King, for his devotion, both in his current position and as uh, Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary of State. He's worked long and hard uh, to achieve a diplomatic solution to the Yemen conflict that restores peace, eases the terrible suffering of the Yemeni people, and sets the country on the path to stability. You and I have spent time together in the region, and I know you bring a level of expertise to this conflict that is most desperately needed. Mr. Chairman, last month marked the sixth anniversary of the start of this conflict, and I commend you for, uh, as you indicated, way back in 2015, uh, getting deeply involved in this effort. Um, it was one of the earliest things I became involved in when I came into the United States Senate. Uh, it makes me chuckle a bit to reflect that a very high-ranking member of, of the previous administration once wrote a column, didn't call me out by name, but uh, indicated that I might be involved in, in this conflict for political reasons. Um, I can't see any upside to that, but I care deeply uh, about the national security and humanitarian um, uh, amalgam of issues uh, here uh, in the region we're discussing. UN Special Envoy Martin Griffiths, uh, together with regional and international partners, continues to work with Yemeni factions in search of a political settlement. But in spite of our best diplomatic efforts, the conflict has intensified in recent weeks. Iran-backed Houthi rebels have stepped up their operations against the city of Marib and have also stepped up their drone, missile, and rocket attacks on the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And just as the fighting in Yemen continues, so does the humanitarian catastrophe. Tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Yemenis have died as the direct or indirect consequence of the fighting. Millions of others are displaced. 
peace has been elusive thus far, and the Yemeni people continue to suffer. A report issued earlier this month by the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs estimated that 20.7 million Yemenis are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. 20.7 million of our fellow human beings. 11.3 million of these are children. 2.8 million of them under the age of five years. 1.8 million are pregnant and lactating women. 3.1 million are people with disabilities. And over 925,000 are people over the age of 60. Now, six years into this awful war, we're still faced with many, many questions. How do we end the fighting? How do we meet the immediate humanitarian needs of the Yemeni people? How do we ensure that those suffering are not co-opted by extremist organizations in the region? How do we help set Yemen on a positive, long-term, sustainable course? How do we remove the Iranian presence from the country. Well, my hope is that at the end of today's hearing, uh, we'll have a clearer sense of how the Biden administration plans to answer these compelling questions. I'm encouraged by the president's early steps to prioritize and end uh, the conflict, but we need to use our resources wisely, learn from past mistakes, and take a clear-eyed look at our diplomatic options. I hope we hear today what the Biden administration plans to do differently from their predecessors to achieve our political and national security objectives, and perhaps most urgently, to help bring an end to the suffering of millions of innocent Yemenis. I know that you, uh, Mr. Chairman, our colleagues on this subcommittee, and our witnesses all agree that a prompt and sustainable end to the fighting in Yemen is essential for the security of the region and for the security of American interests. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman, for your partnership on this issue and for scheduling this hearing today. I look forward to a good discussion and to an exchange of ideas on how the U.S. and our partners can help bring peace to Yemen. Uh, thank you, Senator Young, and thank you for your years of commitment on this uh, issue. Um, uh, let me now introduce uh, a witness who I hope feels uh, very safe. Uh, you are as socially distanced as you could possibly be from the members of this committee. Um, it's my privilege to introduce our uh, special envoy for Yemen, Tim Lenderking. Mr. Lenderking previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Arabian and Peninsula Affairs uh, in the Near East Bureau at the State Department. He is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service uh, with postings all over the Middle East, um, having previously worked for NGOs uh, in the refugee field. Uh, Mr. Leonard King, the floor is yours. Um, we, of course, will have a second uh, panel to give us a slightly different perspective, but we will include your full statement for the record, and we ask you now to summarize your remarks so that we have time for questions. Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member Young, members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you about U.S. policy on Yemen, and thank you on a personal note for all of the support that you've given to this effort. The Biden-Harris administration has prioritized bringing about an end to the conflict in Yemen in support of U.N. efforts. When President Biden announced my appointment on February 4th, he charged me with two specific tasks— reach a durable solution to the conflict, 
and support immediate steps to mitigate the humanitarian crisis. Since my appointment, I've traveled to the region four times to do exactly that. Push the parties toward a ceasefire, followed by inclusive political negotiations, and build international efforts, support for efforts to end the conflict. As a result, we've now achieved a greater international consensus on resolving this conflict than we had before, along with more, more proactive engagement from key regional actors, such as our European partners and the state of Oman. The UN Security Council enjoys an unusual amount of unanimity on solving the conflict in Yemen. This consensus will be critical in pushing for and maintaining a peace process. The parties are engaging in a constructive manner in a way that they have not for years. As a result of this administration's focus on Yemen and sustained U.S. pressure, we've seen Saudi Arabia and the Republic of Yemen government announce their support for a nationwide comprehensive ceasefire. There is now a greater acceptance that the Houthis will have a significant role in a post-conflict government in Yemen. The U.S. will continue to press the Saudis and the Yemen government to ensure that they are taking the necessary steps to resolve the conflict in a responsible manner and to mitigate the humanitarian crisis. More work is needed to get the Houthis to put down their guns, abandon a military solution, and compromise for the sake of peace. The Houthis have thus far refused to accept the ceasefire and instead remain focused on continuing their military assault on the city of Marib. At present, this offensive is the single biggest threat to peace efforts and is also having devastating humanitarian consequences. For nearly six years, Marib has been a haven of stability and a refuge for nearly one million internally displaced persons who have fled conflict elsewhere and have nowhere else to go. A Houthi takeover of the city is not imminent, but they continue to move closer to their goal of encircling the city, potentially cutting off a population of 1.8 million people, many of them already extremely vulnerable. Humanitarian relief organizations warn this offensive risks triggering a tipping point that would overwhelm an already stretched humanitarian response. If we do not stop the fighting in Marib now, it will trigger a wave of even greater fighting and instability. We are already witnessing this through increased fighting on other front lines, a significant increase in airstrikes, and more Houthi attacks on civilian and other infrastructure in Saudi Arabia than at any point in the conflict. We must leverage the international consensus, including here in Washington, and the engagement of regional actors like Oman to stop the offensive in Marib, which is an urgent humanitarian priority. Let me turn briefly to our efforts to address the humanitarian situation, since you have both have raised that so urgently. There is no greater priority when it comes to Yemen. The level of suffering there is unimaginable. You've all seen the disturbing images and dire reports from inside the country. At least one Yemeni child dies every 10 minutes from preventable causes. And this war has gone on for more than six years. I think about that every day. The roots of this crisis are deep. At the beginning of the war, humanitarian leaders stated that Yemen after five months looks like Syria after five years. Because the situation in Yemen was already precarious before this war began. 
And now the economy is collapsing, leaving families unable to purchase even the most essential goods. Healthcare and other basic services are almost non-existent for most Yemenis. Humanitarian assistance is, is offering a critical lifeline for millions and helping prevent a famine, but it will never be enough. It cannot restore the economy or repair broken healthcare systems. In fact, as long as the war continues in places like Marib, the humanitarian crisis will continue to get worse. There are no quick fixes. Only through a durable end to the conflict can we begin to reverse the crisis. In the meantime, we must do everything we can to mitigate the suffering. And for that reason, I would like to state unequivocally that fuel must be allowed to enter regularly through Hudaydah port. The Republic of Yemen government bears responsibility to address this issue, and Saudi Arabia must not stand in the way of it doing so. Similarly, the Houthis bear responsibility for then ensuring that fuel moves freely throughout the areas under their control and for abiding by their commitments to the 2018 Stockholm Agreement to use port revenues to pay salaries of Yemeni civil servants, salaries that would provide urgently needed purchasing power to households living on the margins. I've raised this issue regularly with senior Yemeni and Saudi officials. Although four ships arrived last month and additional ships are moving now as we speak, it is not enough. I'm heartened, however, to see a notable increase in the monthly flow of food into Hudaydah. March 2021 saw 446,000 tons of food enter the port, one of the highest amounts in five years, and 45% above the year 2020 average. This, too, is not enough. But these figures do show that the system can work with cooperation from the parties to the conflict and effective U.N. oversight. And I'm proud the United States remains one of the largest humanitarian donors to Yemen. The movement of humanitarian and commercial goods has consistently been a casualty of the Yemen conflict, whether it is movement of goods through ports, roads, and across front lines, diversion of commercial goods, or bureaucratic impediments to humanitarian assistance. Houthi obstruction of goods and aid has been particularly abhorrent, but they are not the only ones who have engaged in this behavior. These persistent challenges make the imperative of a comprehensive nationwide ceasefire all the more important. Although we can and must tackle these challenges one by one, after six years, it is clear that only by stopping the fighting can we durably address the obstacles to the free flow of humanitarian and economic activity. As you can see, the challenges we face are immense. Only through a united international effort based on a clear, nuanced understanding of the situation can we hope to make progress toward reaching the goals I have outlined and which you, which you have stressed. All of you play an important role in that effort, and that is why I'm here with you today. Thank you for your support, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you very much for your testimony and for your service. I have a long list of questions, and so I will defer, hoping that my colleagues uh, ask uh, some of them, uh, and then I'll uh, ask a few at the end. So let me go first to Senator Young and then to Senator Shaheen. Well, um, Mr. Leonard King, thank you again for being with us today. I, too, have a long list of questions, and uh, I, I see we've got five-minute rounds, which is perfect, uh, because that will keep me focused. So um, I was struck by a line in your testimony where you describe 
the role of Houthi representation in any post-war Yemeni government. Uh, let me go ahead and quote that line. Uh, there is an acceptance that the Houthis will have a significant role in a post-conflict government if they meaningfully participate in a peaceful political process, like any other political group or movement, unquote. If their role in the government is, is now established, Mr. Leonard King, uh, why are they continuing to launch assaults on places like Marib? My view, Senator, is that the Houthis may, have made, may not have made a determination on their own to move into a political process. I think that's partly why we see them raising the bar and imposing maximalist demands when meeting what we feel is a fair and reasonable UN plan to move to a ceasefire and move into political talks. There's clearly, there are clearly divisions within the movement. I think there are hardliners and and uh, moderates, just to right. use conventional terminology. And uh, there's no question that hardliners have a very strong influence. I believe that is with the support of the military uh, component of the, of the Houthi movement. And I believe those elements are continuing to drive on uh, the prospects of a military solution and using Marib as one of the test cases. I know you've Thank you. I, I know you visited with Houthi officials in Muscat. Are the, are the Houthis prepared to halt uh, all of their offensive operations? And, and if the answer is yes, do you have a, a sense of what conditions uh, under which that would occur? They have not uh, hitherto shown the inclination or the commitment to do so. And I think that's the moment that we're in now. We're really right. trying to test and push on those moderate elements, which may be more open to negotiation and ceasefire than the hardliners. And I just think we, we don't know that yet. We have not seen from Houthi behavior that there is openness to abandoning the offensive in Marib. What interests might the Houthi hardliners, let's, let's stick with uh, your characterization, uh, uh, have in peace? They may not have any interest in peace, in which case our cause will be very difficult. And that's where I think we bring international pressure to bear. The, 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 the number of levers that we have to influence Houthi behavior as the United States are honestly quite limited. But nevertheless, I think the Houthis appreciate and in some ways have welcomed uh, the U.S. renewed engagement on the Yemen file because they see us as an actor that can influence Saudi Arabia to help make sure that Saudi Arabia uh, fulfills its responsibilities in a responsible manner. And might the UN Security Council be, be uh, an appropriate uh, venue for that? Uh, it's it's uh, known for complicating <laughs> uh, U.S. foreign policy objectives, but nonetheless, uh, you indicate there's an unusual amount of unanimity uh, on uh, Yemen. Could you just speak to that, sir? I do think so. Uh, was among the many engagements that I've had over the last couple of months, I have met with the, the P5, the United States, and the other principal members of the Security Council. And in these conversations, I find that there's a strong convergence of approaches toward Yemen. And that includes the Chinese, and that includes the Russians. And I think that's something that's very important to build upon. That gives us a little bit of, of leverage, I think. It's, it's encouraging. Um, are the Houthis an Iranian proxy? 
There's no doubt that there's a very significant relationship between Iran and the Houthis. The Iranians have aided, embedded, helped, armed, trained, uh, and teach Houthis, uh, have, have given them arm, armaments and upgraded their weaponry and their arsenal to enable them to do the kinds of almost daily attacks on Saudi Arabia. So it sounds like over the years they've become a proxy, which would sort of be my assessment of, 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 of this, my reading of, of the history. Would you agree with that? I would say that uh, the Houthis argue that they are not. I just want to put that data point out okay. there, and I think okay. that's a, an important thread for us to pull on in our efforts going forward. Okay. Thank you. Senator Jean. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Young, and thank you to Mr. Lenderking for being here. Uh, I, too, like the Chair and Ranking Member, appreciate the focus that President Biden has put on Yemen and your appointment. I want to just follow up a little bit on Senator Young's questions about the Houthis because do we assume that if Saudi Arabia were um, willing to come to the table and negotiate that the and that the Houthis agreed to stop um, shelling into Saudi that we could reach an agreement? around Yemen that might end the fighting? Or is there any will at all on the part of either parties to, to actually end the fighting? I think there is some will that we've seen so far. And by that, if, you, if one looks at the recent history, there have been you know, very constructive engagements in Kuwait in 2016 and Stockholm in 2018. They faltered. They broke down very shortly after agreements were signed or made or, or hands were, were shaken. And we don't want to fall into those same patterns. We're looking at uh, lessons learned from those two experiences. And I say, I, I, I say that there has been constructive engagement between the parties in the last, two, last couple of months in a way that I don't think we've seen in a number of years. That does give me some hope that there will be a commitment for the parties to reach a final deal? Well, I certainly share Chairman Murphy's concern about any resumption of arms sales to Saudi Arabia, as long as, uh, well, generally, but particularly around what's happening in Yemen. And if there are ways that we can um, share with the Saudis our concern and encourage them to move forward, members of Congress, I, I hope you will let us know that because I think that's an issue. I, I really wanted to, to talk a, a little bit about the role of women in Yemen as we're looking at negotiations. As I'm sure you're aware, we have a law in the United States called Women, Peace, and Security that was signed into law in 2017 that requires that our foreign policy prioritize women's representation and gender considerations in all peace and conflict settings. And my understanding is that this has been a real issue in Yemen, that as we have talked to representatives from, uh, to women representatives from Yemen, they feel totally cut out by the United Nations of peace negotiations, and I appreciate that that's really the next panel, but since I'm not going to be able to get back here to ask this question, um, I, I will ask you, are there ways that we can encourage the UN to make 
a priority of including Yemeni women as they're looking at their activities in the country? And what are you doing as our lead negotiator and envoy to address inclusion of women? Well, thank you very much, Senator. Very important question, and I very much agree that uh, that women have the the role of women has been downplayed hitherto, and, and it's important that we not continue that pattern. On my end, uh, we have a regular dialogue with Yemeni uh, female leaders, both inside and outside Yemen. I've made it a point to keep in touch. Most of this, unfortunately, is is virtual. Um, given the, the state of, of COVID around the world and, and the difficulties of getting into Yemen itself. But I take a, a, a lot of uh, pride in the fact that we have a regular, regular dialogue with Yemeni women leaders. And I think it gives us the ability to better understand the internal circumstances in Yemen and to, to leverage that to ensure that going forward, Yemen, Yemeni women will be represented uh, vigorously in any sort of peace talks. So how can we influence the UN to encourage them to take a similar approach? That's part of the conversation that we have with the UN team. And um, Secretary Blinken has also spoken to the Yemeni Prime Minister about this issue when, as we begin to think, I hope that day will come soon, when we can begin to think about delegations who would begin to undertake peace talks, that they be inclusive. So we're taking a, a, a sort of a multi- faceted and well-rounded effort here to try and make sure that this actually happens. Um, I appreciate that, and I'm out of time, but just to be clear, as I know you are probably aware, as are many others, that this is not just about including women because it looks good. It's because the data shows that when women are involved in conflict resolution, it means that the resulting agreement is 35% more likely to last for 15 years or more. So there are good data-driven reasons why we need to have women at the table as we're looking at negotiations. And it seems to me that this should be obvious, um, not just to the United States, but to the UN and to others who are going to be interested in a resolution of this conflict. So thank you very much for your um, good work. No, thank you. And just to just to add on to that, I uh, attended a roundtable yesterday in which that point was made and, and the importance of not waiting until we get to peace talks that to see that women's views are brought into the process. And so I can assure you that that will be a priority for me going forward. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Sheen. We have a vote uh, pending on the floor. We're going to keep the hearing going. Uh, and Senator Young and I will trade off. Senator Haggerty was next, but I think he went to vote. So uh, we have a few other members who are joining us virtually. Senator Markey would be next. He may not be there yet, so maybe Trayvon Allen. If Senator Markey, so we may have people going to and from votes. If Senator Markey is not there, how about Senator Van Hollen? Yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And um, Thank you, uh, Mr. Lender King, for your leadership and your, your testimony. Um, I saw reports of uh, some dialogue between Saudi officials and Iranian officials um, regarding different regional uh, disputes, conflicts, um, and Yemen being at the top of that list. Can you give us any readout um, about what may have been uh, discussed um, at that at that meeting and whether any progress um, was made. 
Senator, thank you. I'm, I'm eager to, uh, to learn more about that meeting myself, which, is rep- which reportedly took place uh, during the month, uh, early, earlier this month. We certainly regard that contact between the Saudis and the Iranians, whether it's on Yemen or other regional issues, is valuable and important. The more that these two countries can lower the temperature in the region, the better, better, better off any of the regional conflicts in which these two players are set up as opponents will be. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened to see, that, uh, see the reports that such a meeting took place, and I look forward to receiving further details about it. Yeah, I took it as a promising uh, sign, uh, although we never know where it will end up. But uh, you mentioned in your testimony issues of uh, restrictions on fuel imports and the need to open up uh, the port. How big a factor and sticking point is that in your view to a political resolution of, of this um, of, of the dispute? I think it's a, it's, it's a key part, certainly, of the economic and humanitarian situation in Yemen. Um, what we want to do is avoid politicizing uh, any of the, uh, the economic issues that are vital to the safety and security of Yemenis. So while I say that, uh, and I appreciate Secretary Blinken's intervention here to, to make this happen, the movement of fuel ships, uh, and I've you know, stated unequivocally that this is a principle that we must continue. It can't just be seven ships now or eight ships now. It has to be open-ended, free-flowing, with minimal uh, bureaucratic impediment to make sure that uh, the ports are open and receiving goods to the greatest of their ability. So I think let's get this issue off the table. Uh, This should not be a factor in the political discussions going forward. There should be no impediment imposed by any party and no obstruction imposed by any party on the ground or at sea to the movement of vital economic and humanitarian supplies. Thank you. And um, under what circumstances uh, can you imagine uh, Iran deciding to stop providing material support to the Houthis? I I imagine that would be as part of a political uh, settlement, uh, overall settlement, but what are the major ingredients, uh, in your view, that need to be resolved to, to get to that point? I think you're exactly right, Senator, that as we move closer um, to a political sell- settlement, this is the best way to minimize Iran's influence in Yemen. Because right now, I don't see any indications that Iran supports a political solution. What I see is continued aiding and abetting and arming of Houthis by the Iranians so that they can continue attacking Saudi Arabia. And unfortunately, those attacks have risen uh, quite strongly in the last couple of months. They're also threatening shipping in the Bab al-Mendeb, this vital, uh, vital strait that, that continues on up to the Red Sea. So this, this is utterly unacceptable to the international community. And I think that uh, the more we push forward in this uh, peace effort, we have to keep an eye on this particular facet. I'd like to see progress, obviously, made by my colleague Rob Malley, the special envoy for Iran and his efforts in Iran. I would hope that that would bear some fruit uh, for the Yemen conflict, but I'm not holding my breath, and I can't wait for goodwill to break out between the United States and Iran. We've got urgent issues in Yemen. We need to push forward as best we can with the tools that we have. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. and. Uh 
best wishes on your important mission. Uh, thank you, Senator Van Hollen. I believe Senator Haggerty has rejoined us. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. Special Envoy Linda King, first I want to thank you for your willingness to take on this incredibly difficult task of securing a peaceful resolution to the Yemen conflict. Your reputation as a skilled diplomat in the Gulf and many other regions is impeccable. And I know you've been dealing with the Yemen problem for many years, so it's important for us to hear your expert view. Earlier this year, the Biden administration revoked the designation of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization, ostensibly to facilitate the very peace process that you're tasked to promote. But at virtually the same time, they were at virtually the same time they were taken off the FTO list, the Houthis were attacking Saudi Arabia with missiles and drones and assaulting the city of Maru. As you describe in detail in your very candid written testimony, this is the circumstance that occurred as we lift the FTO status. So my question is this, given the Houthis continued attacks against civilians and against regional neighbors, has the Biden administration's revocation of the Houthis FTO designation had its intended effect of encouraging the Houthis to make peace? Or have the Houthis simply been emboldened to continue their extremist course? I think, Senator, that if we look at the past year, we see a steady, uh, steady rate of, of Houthi attacks on Saudi Arabia. So I don't think one can attribute um, attacks in January and February to the, uh, the undesignation, uh, undesignating of the organization. Uh, and I, I, I do think that um, increased pressure on the Houthis is definitely necessary sort of a, a, across the board. But they've kept up a very aggressive tempo of attacks. And I think that relates more to the supply of weapons and Iran's uh, equities in Yemen, if you will, than to steps that we've taken. And, the, and the, of course, the Biden administration did this primarily not because of any love for the Houthis. I mean, we want to be 100 percent clear on that but because the humanitarian implications of the designation would have been quite dire. And I think looked at through that lens, uh, the Biden administration said the humanitarian issue is of paramount importance. We have to do everything we can to support it, and the designation is not, does not fit with that priority. I yield my time back, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much, uh, S Senator uh, Haggerty. Uh, let me ask a, a series of uh, questions, and if we have others join, I'll ask them to finish off. First, let me talk about humanitarian aid. Um, in 2019, the UN Humanitarian Appeal uh, was funded at 87 percent. In 2020, it was funded at 50 percent. And so far this year, that figure is 21 percent. There's a proposal on the table from the Swiss and the Swedes who are hosting this year's conference to do a follow-on conference to try to get that number up. Um, what do you propose or the necessary next steps to uh, try to increase these commitments? Obviously, the need is greater today than it was in 2019, and our funding levels internationally have decreased. Absolutely right, Senator. Point that out. Uh, and uh, again, the one of the two charges that the president asked me to undertake was to work to mitigate the humanitarian crisis. In order to do that, we've talked here about the importance of opening up ports and, and other uh, vital arteries. But the other piece is, uh, is that there has to be funding, generous funding from the donors. 
I've made it a priority on my trips uh, around the region, and I've stopped in all of the Gulf countries or spoken to their leaders. I've visited uh, one or two European countries. Um, central to all of those conversations I have is the importance of maintaining generous funding. I was very glad that Secretary Blinken appeared um, uh, at the March 1st Donors Conference to lend American support and highlight the importance of the humanitarian situation. But we've got to have the follow-through. It's not only to get more funding, but it's to ensure that the funds that have been uh, pledged will be dispersed. So that's uh, right up there at the top of my list of, of, uh, of priorities. And I would like to see the Swiss and the Swedes go ahead with this conference. Uh, I'm glad to hear it. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the conditions necessary for a, a restart of ceasefire discussions. Um, you stated in your opening remarks that the Saudis are ready to end this war responsibly and they want peace. Um, but I would note, just after they made their ceasefire office, they escalated airstrikes in Yemen, striking Sana'a as well as a nearby grain port, um, and uh, they've launched new military offensives of their own. No doubt the Houthis need to stop the offensive in Marib, and we cannot have any serious discussions about a political settlement without that offensive. Um, but are there also steps that the Saudis need to take beyond their end for support to the blockade in order to set the conditions uh, for either a ceasefire or political discussions following on that ceasefire? Absolutely. I, I do think, uh, Senator, that there is um, there's a receptivity from Saudi Arabia to working with us to achieve a responsible uh, resolution of the conflict. But there's going to have to be a, a, a real spirit of compromise from, from Saudi Arabia. Um, some of the goals that they may have wished to have achieved five years ago are not attainable. The Houthis have shown themselves to be a very strong military force, and there's been great loss of life, way too many civilian casualties, much too much destruction of civilian infrastructure, loss of life, uh, internally displaced people. So what I'd like to see from Saudi Arabia, and I think where we can come into play more, most directly, is to, is to show that spirit of compromise and to meet um, terms that, that are attainable, that are realistic on a ceasefire, and to help work out mechanisms and adhere to them that would uh, govern the, the terms of a ceasefire, and to help do, continue doing what we're doing now to keep those vital economic and humanitarian arteries open. Uh, I'm going to try to sneak two more questions in under the gun. Um, one is... Uh, on the current role of the UAE inside Yemen. Um, we talk about the UAE's decision to withdraw militarily from the UAE, but my sense is it's not that simple. There are reports that the UAE is still involved in um, other mechanisms to support their partners on the ground uh, inside Yemen. Um, while they may not have their own forces participating, uh, they still have lots of other ways to uh, be able to, uh, to try to leverage um, uh, events in their direction. What's your sense of the UAE's involvement in the Yemen civil war today? 
I went to UAE last week uh, to discuss that very, very issue, Senator, and uh, foremost on my mind, humanitarian concerns, as you noted, following through on pledges and continuing to, uh, to be generous on the humanitarian side, but also to ensure that the UAE uses its influence in Yemen. And as you do rightly point out, they do have influence in Yemen, even if there are not Emiratis themselves present in the same numbers to use that influence to ensure that groups that they have influence over are continuing to support the Yemeni government and stay within the terms of of a united Yemen. Are they still involved in providing any kind of military intelligence, logistical or other support to armed actors on the ground in Yemen? Well, they're still a member, of course, of the Saudi-led coalition. So they're a strong member of of that coalition. of that entity, and they're also providing key counterterrorism support for us and for the Saudis to go after al-Qaeda and ISIL remnants, which still exist and thrive in the open spaces in Yemen. Um, one, I'll sneak in one last question and then ask Senator Young if he's got any uh, final questions for you before turning to the next panel. Um, you talked about uh, the role of the Iranians uh, and our lack of leverage on the Houthis. I understand you probably don't want to comment specifically on negotiations surrounding the uh, re-entering of a nuclear agreement. Um, But suffice it to say, uh, it is helpful for us to create conditions such that Iran has less reason to create provocations in the region that compromise our security interests. I, I think you are right to um, to, to suggest it's not easy to predict what the Iranians are going to do, whether we're inside or outside of the JCPOA. But there's lots of people that have suggested that so long as we are involved in a maximum pressure campaign on Iran, they are going to be looking for ways uh, to try to uh, disrupt uh, our interests in the region, and Yemen is clearly a place where they can do that. Um, I know you can't predict Iranian behavior, but we are wise to try to uh, arrange our priorities in the region to try to disincentivize the reasons why Iran might want to provoke us uh, and uh, create destabilizing situations. Certainly agree with that. And uh, again, that's why I hope that the uh, conversations in Vienna and the further interactions through the Europeans and others that we really can make some headway with Iran on the JCPOA. In the meantime, I do think we have to stay vigilant. We have to keep our naval forces uh, through NAVSENT in Bahrain vigilant with what the Iranians are doing on the high seas, make sure they're not able to continue smuggling uh, supplies into the Houthis. Thank you. Any final questions, Senator uh, Just uh, a final uh, sort of comment, and I'd like to enter something into a rec- into the record. There, there have been press reports recently that uh, the Houthis – are indoctrinating children in Yemen uh, with violent anti-Semitic and extremist material. According to this reporting, uh, the curriculum is part of a broader Houthi strategy to instill their ideology across society. I think we've been hearing for years about uh, such indoctrination occurring in madrasas, uh, oftentimes Sunni uh, uh, curriculum uh, funded by uh, some complicated partners and uh, uh, oftentimes. But uh, with that said, uh, this would be Houthis uh, who uh, are uh, 
their their creed is uh, is a form of Shia Islam. So anyway, I'd li- Mr. Chairman, without objection, I'd like to request that this article uh, be added to the record. Without objection. Thank you very much for your testimony. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and with that, um, we'll uh, bring our second panel up. I'm going to introduce you and then cut out to vote. And as they are being brought up, I'm going to read their introductions so I don't miss the vote. Uh, our second panel is uh, first going to be uh, Lise Grande, who is the president and CEO of the U.S. Institute for Peace. She has 25 years of overseas experience leading, managing, and coordinating complex operations for the United Nations. Most of us know her through her prior role before joining USIP. Uh, She served as the head of UN humanitarian and development operations in Yemen. She has been of great counsel to many of us as we have formed our views uh, on the Yemen conflict. And uh, we also are very pleased to be joined today uh, by Amanda uh, Cantanzano. She is the Senior Director of International Programs, Policy and Advocacy at the International Rescue Committee. She comes to the IRC from a career in the United States government, most recently as director for strategic planning at the National Security Council. These are two uh, witnesses who can give us uh, an important perspective uh, on the current state of the crisis uh, in Yemen. Uh, So, Lisa, I'll turn it over first to you. Is it ready? Um, Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member Young, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, it is an honor to have the opportunity to appear before you today. For March 2018 until December 2020, I served as the head of the UN's humanitarian and development operations in Yemen. For nearly three years, I was the only senior international official present full-time in the country and the only one to be present in Sana'a, the capital, under the control of Ansarallah, the Houthis. As we all know, the conflict in Yemen has lasted six years. It's resulted in the world's worst humanitarian crisis. It has resulted in a fragmentation of political power and turned Yemen into a failed state likely to collapse or worse, to split into independent, separately administered zones. With your permission, I'd like to share more detail on the humanitarian crisis, which is so shocking in its magnitude, it is hard even to describe. Senator Murphy, as you noticed, noted, and as did Senator Young, 20 million Yemenis, two-thirds of the entire population, now require humanitarian aid. There's no other country in the world where a higher percentage of the population depends upon the generosity of the international community to survive. 12 million are suffering from the most severe, agonizing, and life-threatening forms of need. They are either hungry, ill, forced to use unsafe water, homeless, jobless, unable to send their children to school, or all of these. 16 million Yemenis, that's more than half the entire country, do not have enough food. They wake up every morning and have no idea if or when they will eat that day. If something is not done now, humanitarian agencies are estimating that as many as 400,000 children are at risk of starving in just the next few months. As I said in my introductory comments, 
The humanitarian crisis in Yemen has a very specific cause. It's the war. Yemen's war is actually waged along two fronts. The military front includes the airstrikes, bombing, missiles, shelling, landmines, and fighting that have killed or injured nearly 20,000 civilians. The second front includes the measures that are directed at destroying the enemy's economy. These measures are used deliberately and to great effect by the Saudi-led coalition and include controls over the number and timing of all ships entering the port city of Hudaydah. They also include the decision to stop salary payments for public servants in northern Yemen, and they include restrictions on credit, imports, capital flows, and customs. At least 130,000 civilians are conservatively estimated to have died as a result of these and other indirect factors. The second front is a main driver of the humanitarian crisis, but it is not the only cause. Another aggregating factor is the behavior of Ansarallah of the Houthis. In northern Yemen, Ansarallah has now systematically seized almost all of the instruments of the state. They have also established new parallel structures staffed only by Houthis, which operate without public accountability and constitute a separate system of authority with wide-ranging powers. Ansarallah has imposed hundreds of restrictions on the delivery of humanitarian aid, and Ansarallah continues to threaten, bully, intimidate, and detain humanitarian staff. The steps that are being taken by President Biden in Yemen are welcome. All of us who have worked in the country know that only the U.S., with our partners, with our allies, has the leverage to end the war. There are many reasons why the U.S. should use this leverage. First, and this is absolutely undeniable, the war has given American adversaries opportunities to undermine our interests. Second, two of the world's most malign extremist forces, Al-Qaeda and ISIL, are present in Yemen and likely to spread further if the war continues. Third, as the most generous donor in the world and committed to values-based diplomacy, none of us would want to see the U.S. turn its back on Yemen in its time of greatest need. Of the many things that need to be done right now, none is more urgent than relieving humanitarian suffering. Four steps will make all the difference. First, as several of us have said, we need to give generously to humanitarian agencies so they can do their work. Second, economic restrictions, part of that second front, need to be immediately lifted, allowing basic goods to enter and circulate freely in the country. Third, the central bank in Aden needs to be capitalized, and public servants in the north need to be paid. None of these steps are impossible. In 2018, as the country was facing famine, all of these steps were taken, and as a result, famine was avoided. The fourth step is harder. Ansarallah's police state is now so predatory and coercive, the U.S. and our allies have no choice but to condition our engagement with the movement in ways which incentivize, pressure the Houthis to change their behavior. A final point. 
Yemen's political future can only be decided by Yemenis. The U.S. can help to create the conditions for a national reckoning and dialogue, but the work of deciding what kind of country Yemen will be is theirs, not ours. All political and civil society components, including the women's groups mentioned by Senator Shaheen, need to be part of this discussion. If that doesn't happen, Yemen's future will be allowed to rest only in the hands of the elites who have destroyed the country and created so much misery. Surely we can avoid this. Before the national reckoning, however, can even start, the parties and forces fighting this war must lay down their weapons. So far, the belligerents have not yet made this commitment. Instead, they continue to maneuver, stall, dodge, and fight. There are now 47 separate front lines in Yemen. A year ago, there were 33. This may be evidence of the parties trying to gain final advantage before sitting down to talk, or it may signal that the forces fighting Yemen's war are not yet persuaded they should stop. Thank you, Ms. Grande, uh, for that very compelling testimony. I would next like to call on Ms. Catanzo. Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member Young, and members of the subcommittee, thank you for convening us today and for prioritizing Yemen for this subcommittee's first hearing. I represent the International Rescue Committee, a humanitarian organization with over 400 staff, mainly Yemenis, working across the north and south of the country. Last year, the IRC provided health services for over 600,000 Yemenis and treated nearly 30,000 children under five for malnutrition, thanks in large part to the generous U.S. funding we receive. We also provide education, clean water, emergency cash, and job training. While the humanitarian crisis in Yemen is protracted, it's by no means static. The situation continues to unravel as Yemenis confront new shocks with fewer resources and less resilience. After a relative lull, conflict is spiking. Yemenis are enduring the legacy of a cruelly conducted war that's made recovery nearly impossible. Every day, for over six years, Yemenis have endured 10 airstrikes on average. And at the same time, the conflict's daily horrors continue. Last year, as Ms. Grande mentioned, front lines exploded from 33 to 49, making safety increasingly hard to find. Today, Yemenis are more likely to be killed in their homes than anywhere else. And Yemen's economy is collapsing as warring parties manipulate it as a tool of warfare, choking the import of critical commodities, especially fuel, and sending prices skyrocketing. Three in five Yemenis surveyed by the IRC could not afford basic items like food, and many families are resorting to child labor and child marriage to ease their household expenses. The humanitarian response is constrained. Bureaucratic challenges, not insecurity due to conflict, account for over 90% of access incidents. And despite some improvements, issues like delays in program approvals still slow the delivery of life-saving aid. But the biggest constraint to our work is underfunding, which has forced humanitarians to scale back even as the needs spiral. The result? 
the world's worst humanitarian crisis is on track for its worst, wor worst year yet. Famine alarms are ringing again as over half of Yemen's population is going hungry, and a record 50% of all children under five are acutely malnourished, and 400,000 at risk of dying without treatment. To call this unraveling a tragedy would miss the point. Yemen's cycle of crisis is not an accident. It's the predictable outcome of a war that has put civilians in the crosshairs. A hunger crisis is inevitable when a thousand markets, farms, and forged food storage facilities are bombed and import restrictions price families out of basic goods. Malnutrition and disease outbreaks are what happens when health facilities are attacked or denied critical supplies. And child labor and child marriage are among the only options left when the international community cuts funding in half and five million fewer Yemenis receive aid each month. We're grateful for the sustained congressional pressure that's helped drive U.S. policy away from a failed war strategy. And we applaud the Biden administration's initial steps to pivot toward diplomacy. The severity of the humanitarian situation requires the U.S. build on this momentum quickly. And we urge the U.S. to do both the urgent work to save lives and the important work to end the conflict driving the need without making one contingent on the other. Humanitarian steps are not political bargaining chips. Sequencing or conditioning them shows callous disregard for Yemeni lives. To this end, the U.S. should take the following five steps. First, rally more funding to avert the worst outcomes like famine. Humanitarians are operating with only a quarter of the funds required. The U.S. should support a follow-on donor conference this year to fill the dangerously low coffers. Second, push back against constraints on humanitarian operations across Yemen. NGOs like the IRC need high-level engagement between the U.N. and donors with all authorities to remove persistent bureaucratic barriers that keep aid from Yemenis who so desperately need it. Third, ensure the unimpeded flow of commercial and humanitarian imports. Given the devastating humanitarian toll of the current fuel shortages, the U.S. should prioritize pushing the government of Yemen to allow fuel ships to berth at Hadida port. The U.S. should also push for all air and sea ports to be reopened to humanitarian and commercial traffic. Fourth, secure an immediate nationwide ceasefire. A halt to the fighting would protect civilians and the infrastructure they depend on, and it would facilitate delivery of much-needed aid and help create space for a meaningful political process. Fifth, drive forward a new diplomatic framework. A sustained political settlement is the only way out of Yemen's nightmare. Building on last week's Security Council press statement, the U.S. should support a new council resolution that's more inclusive and addresses the thorniest issues, including the economic disputes increasingly at the heart of the conflict and the humanitarian crisis. I offer my sincere thanks to the subcommittee for this opportunity to share the challenges facing IRC's Yemeni staff and clients, and look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you to uh, both, and I apologize for having to be at the vote for uh, the majority of your testimony. Uh, and for that reason, I'll turn it back over to Senator Young to ask the opening round of questions. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Ms. Grom, Ms. Catanzo, I'm sorry, I keep mispronouncing your name. Uh, thanks again, both for your years of service and for your presence here today. Um, Ms. Catanzo, your testimony described Yemen's cycle of crisis. Uh, I, too, am deeply worried about Yemen reaching a point where we lose multiple generations of Yemenis uh, to this conflict, whether from being permanently displaced, lack of good education, 
or worse yet, losing their life as a result of the ongoing violence. Uh, this is why, despite the Houthis' despicable behavior, I oppose the previous administration's decision to use an overly broad label and list them as a foreign terrorist organization. Now, I understand that an FTO designation would only bring more suffering to those Yemenis who live in Houthi-controlled areas, as it would cut them off from the life-saving humanitarian aid that they need to survive. But unfortunately, as we were discussing earlier, the Houthis seem emboldened in recent weeks, despite these actions from the Biden administration. Some of this was addressed in your testimonies, but I'm going to ask for a, a, a few questions. Uh, either of you can pipe up, because I think each of you covered various facets of it. But um, uh, just to ensure that those who are listening in properly understand the magnitude of this humanitarian crisis. I think it's very important. So approximately how many people require humanitarian assistance in Yemen? Over 20 million people require humanitarian assistance, about two-thirds of the population. So perspective for uh, my constituents back home, that's, that's roughly three times the population of the state of Indiana. The mass a little off. We have 6.75 million people, uh, give or take, but um, that's roughly three times our state's population. What percent uh, of the population requires humanitarian assistance in Yemen? It's about two-thirds of the population. Okay, so, okay. I think you just said that. Um, so this, is, this has been an increase from last year, right? Actually, it's a bit of a decrease from last year, but OCHA and the UN warns that it's less about, any, about it being a decrease in those who need, but le- more about assessments and ability to, to survey who's in need. So they would, they would warn us not to read too much. So this is a data issue. issue. Data okay. issue rather it starts than to become, facts on the ground. It's important, but it starts to become boring, so we'll move on. Um, how many are severely food insecure? About half the population is food insecure, 16 million. Okay, how many children are severely malnourished? Do we have any sense of that? 2.3 million right now, and 1.3 million women who are either pregnant or lactating are severely malnourished. Okay, thank you. I, it's, it's, it's not, this is not a game of, of, of jeopardy. This is not a trivia show. This is real life. And uh, obviously, I, I'm trying to create a picture here uh, for those who are listening and to understand the gravity of this situation and what is causing incredible hardship and destabilization and ultimately radicalization and, and a greater terrorist threat. So uh, we have the convergence of, of a number of different crises on account of these different dynamics. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm going to ask you, Ms. Grand, you, you listed off four different steps that we should take, uh, and uh, uh, Ms. Catanzo uh, listed off a number of other steps to redress some of this and help mitigate uh, this crisis. But ultimately, we need to pressure the Houthis to change their behavior. Kindly elaborate on that very important point. Yeah, it's really hard to do it. Senator, it's one of the reasons when I was giving the, the testimony, um, you know, I was really clear that, that in 2018, when the country was 
facing famine the first time. Of the four things that I listed that need to be done, three of those were done and the famine was avoided. You know, it's very rare that you actually stop a famine. And because of the generosity of the U.S. government and other donors, because of the heroic work of frontline partners like IRC and the U.N., it was stopped. If we don't do those three things and one more this time, that famine's going to hit. Now, the additional factor this time is dealing with Ansarallah, the Houthis' behavior. In 2018, they had not introduced hundreds of restrictions against the delivery of humanitarian assistance, and they have now. They now have constructed a state within a state. It's a coercive, predatory police state. Can we beat the famine with that police state intact? I'm not sure. Now, how you pressure the Houthis to change their behavior is a very difficult question to answer. Do you hit them really hard and hope they change their behavior? Not clear. Do you give them some incentives and hope that they change their behavior? They're not responding very well to those incentives right now which raises the deeply uncomfortable question about how their behavior is going to be changed. Now, there are some other possibilities, of course. Perhaps the people who are supporting them can finally say to the Houthis, you don't get to do this anymore. That might be something. But that, of course, would be part, as the special envoy have said, as a much bigger diplomatic initiative, not just on Yemen, but that includes other parts of the region as well. Just sounds unprecedentedly complicated, and therefore even history may not uh, provide us a particularly good guide. But uh, so grateful for your work. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, um, Ms. Carney. Just tell me what, what is what's changed between 2018 and 2020 that has prompted the Houthis uh, to put up, as you referred to, literally hundreds of individual barriers to aid. What, what, what's, what's, what's different? Senator, it's, a, it's an, a great question. And I was actually, the, I was the one on the ground, the one person that every single day talked to Houthis upside down, inside out, and all around. What changed was that rather than the Houthis being the custodian of the state apparatus in northern Yemen, they first of all tried to transform it, take it over, capture it. And the parts of the apparatus that they didn't think were working in their interest, they've constructed a completely separate one. It was very noticeable. Literally from one month to the next, the interaction of Ansarallah with the United Nations and other partners on the ground changed dramatically. Now, it also coincided with shifts inside of the movement. As the special envoy noted, there are factions with inside Ansarallah. And the Falcons, you know, the hardliners, as they in came into increasing power, you could see that their whole approach to their responsibilities as the occupiers of northern Yemen changed as a result. That's what happened. Hardliners got on top of it and now control that movement and are driving it in a direction which may take it further and deeper into war rather than toward peace. And uh, given that we don't have many people 
who have a greater knowledge of these internal dynamics, that hardline group, and I understand it's dangerous to apply these these names to a very complicated um, movement, but these hardliners by and large are the faction that are more closely aligned with Iran? Uh, Senator, I think that there are parts of the hardliners uh, constellation that you could definitely say that about. There are other parts of the hardliners which are driven by a different logic. But in general, you could definitely point in that direction and you would not be far off. There are parts of Ansarallah which don't like being under the thumb of Iran. Then they, they don't like it. They're very upfront about that. They're very open about it. And they are continually looking for alternative ways of engaging with the international community. There are people within Ansarallah like that. I think that's an incredibly important point. And you and I have talked about this at length, but there is obviously always a tendency to believe that these groups on the other side of the world are monolithic. Um, the Houthis are not monolithic. Uh, and well, they certainly have drawn closer to uh, Iran by necessity as this conflict has, uh, has, has grown. Um, there are elements uh, of the Houthis uh, that are uncomfortable with that, that may provide us uh, with uh, with some uh, opportunity here. But as you know, the overall trend line in behavior, regardless of who's connected to Iran and who isn't, um, is just devastating when it comes to the people in uh, areas controlled by the by the Houthis. Um, uh, second question for you, Ms. Grande, about the overall state of the economy. We focus on this question of fuel imports. Um, but it's important to note that um, we're arguing over fuel imports because nothing else is getting in. There's a few staple um, food goods that get in and fuel. But tell us the story of the rest of the blockade and how that affects the Yemeni economy. It's really hard to have a functioning economy when all you let into the country through the main port are fuel and six categories of food products. Obviously, things get in other ways, but there's a cost to that. Um, a functioning economy is very difficult when you have um, when, when you have such a restriction on items being brought into the country. Correct. That's absolutely right, and I, I think you know, in describing the war as having two fronts: a military front and an economic front. What we are pointing to is that it's the economic front. It's economic warfare which has destroyed that country and brought it to its knees. That's not to diminish the impact of the military front. It's not. But if you look at how many people have been wounded and killed, if the military front, 20,000, how many people have died conservatively from the second front, 130,000 and counting. Why is the country facing its second famine in two and a half years? Because of the second front. That's where the heart of this war is. And the core of that are the restrictions on every conceivable form of economic activity, credit, customs, capital flows, the central bank, the number of ships that get in when they get in. That whole architecture is what is driving this humanitarian crisis. You want to end the crisis? Stop economic warfare. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. And overnight, I guarantee the situation will improve. The UN did some back-of-the-envelope calculations of how many people we wouldn't have to feed if that second front were shut down, 
The World Food Program and frontline partners would be able to immediately, within just a few months, significantly reduce by tens of percentage points how many people we have to feed. It's that obvious. You know, this is an income famine. People cannot afford to pay for the food that's in the country at the price point it's there at. Now, how do you solve that? You get more income into the hands of the people who need to buy things, and you lower the overall cost of food and basic commodities, and you do that by letting these goods circulate freely. Now, the second front denies that, and that's why it's got to stop. Uh, thank you, Ms. Grande. Ms. Cant- uh, Ms. Canzano, um, you may have covered some of this in your testimony, but I wanted to come back to this question of the humanitarian appeal for this year. Um, I, I take everything that has been said about the inability to service people while the conflict exists. Um, understand that there's no way to do this effectively, no matter how much money we have so long as there's uh, this level of active conflict on the ground. Um, But that number uh, of what percentage of the appeal has been funded this year is really scary. Uh, And um, I'm sure you might have covered this in your testimony, but if you might be able to elaborate on what that means um, to have 20% of the appeal funded versus 100% or 80%, uh, and then, you know, what the way out is, right? What are the reasons why uh, our partners, in particular the Emiratis and the Saudis, are pledging less um, this year than they have in the past? Um, how, do we, how do we find a way to get uh, to a better number? Thank you, Chairman Murphy. I think it's a really important point for us to focus on um, for a number of reasons. The, as you mentioned, the humanitarian appeal is funded at less than 25% so far this year, and the donors' conference that was held last month was really disappointing um, in terms of, it, of the money that was put on the table. What that's mean, in effect, is this is the second year where we've seen those disappointing results when it comes to donors coming to the table. Um, last year, at the beginning of, of 2020, the humanitarian response was meeting the needs of about 14 million Yemenis every month. That has steadily had to decline to about 9 million Yemenis per month as a result of that underfunding. So while the fighting keeps us from accessing those in need and all of the bureaucratic constraints in the north, but quite frankly also in the south, that, that Ms. Grande has alluded to keep us from reaching people in need, the single biggest barrier to humanitarians doing their work is this lack of funding. And it has been um, evident in the numbers that we've seen. If we see how malnutrition numbers are now at a record, half of Yemeni children um, under the age of five are acutely malnourished. 400,000 of them you know, are at risk of dying without additional treatment. That is a direct result of these numbers going down the way that they have. The needs are going up, but donors are coming to the table um, with a lot less generosity. Part of what we are hearing from some donors is that they're frustrated with the lack of political progress in Yemen. We're all frustrated with the lack of political progress in Yemen. It is the conflict that's driving this need on both dimensions, as Ms. Grande said, the military and the economic front. But what we know is that Yemenis are bearing that cost, and they are not responsible for the lack of political progress. So I think we really need the U.S. to put pressure on these donors to not make their contributions contingent on political progress. Humanitarian aid should not have strings attached. I think that um, we heard Mr. Lendeking's commitment today to to, um, endorse a follow-on donors conference, which was a 
uh, offer put on the table by this year's hosts right at um, the moment of the previous donors conference because it was such a disappointment. They said right on that day, we need to do this again. And I think that's important. And I think the U.S. now has a bit more moral authority to, to um, rally those donors to the table, having lifted the suspension in northern Yemen that had been on place last year. Every dollar matters when the catastrophe is this big, and so the willingness of the U.S. to move forward and bring that money to bear in the north will help them galvanize other donors and encourage them not just to write to, um, to pledge, but to turn those promises into real dollars quickly, because promises of money don't save lives. That money needs to be moved quickly to frontline agencies with the ability to scale up. And as Ms. Grande mentioned earlier, we saw in 2018 and 2019 when the humanitarian appeal was fully funded and humanitarians were able to scale up, we averted the worst outcomes. We could do that again. That knowledge and that um, ability is still there in country. It just needs the funding to, spur, um, to, to um, kick into action. Um, so, so one final question to follow up. Uh, Amongst those donors is the United States. Um, Could the United States do more to lead by example and ask others to follow, especially if we are going to be uh, convening a second sort of uh, mission-directed donors conference? I think the U.S. could do more. I think the U.S. also has an important convening role to play. It's not just about the size of the check that the U.S. writes, but its ability to bring others to the table. The U.K. has been particularly disappointing this year um, with their pledges. I think pressure needs to be brought to bear on the U.K. If they want to be the pen holder at the Security Council, they also need to be willing um, to bring their contributions to the table for the humanitarian response. So it's both about more U.S. funding, but it's also about U.S. using its leverage to bring those donors to the table. And like you mentioned, the Saudis and the Emiratis, while they did, um, they did bring funding to the table this year and the UAE had not last year, it's at far lower rates than we've seen in the past. So that's another set of donors that I think the U.S. really needs to be banging on. Yeah, just to put it on the record, the, the Saudis each gave uh, around uh, half a billion dollars in 2019. That's a substantial uh, amount of money, no doubt, uh, but these are the actors that have been <laughs> primarily uh, responsible for uh, continuing to fuel this conflict. Uh, the Saudis have pledged $430 million, uh, significantly less, and the Emiratis have only pledged $230 million, uh, this year. Um, so that is in part what explains our shortfall. Um, Senator Young? Just an observation and a reflection as, as we prepare to close here. We Americans, I think, um, have, a, have a cultural penchant, uh, most especially, towards trying to solve problems. And um, in a sort of geopolitical context, oftentimes it's been said that you need to manage problems, really hard problems. And, and sometimes you need to manage them until they can be solved. And so I think this hearing has been particularly informative to me about um, itemizing and articulating some ways uh, that we can be constructive managers, uh, partnering with this administration, uh, partnering with other countries, pressuring other countries and individuals and stakeholders uh, where necessary in order to uh, mitigate uh, some of the carnage and, and violence and, and threats of violence uh, uh, that we see. Um, working uh, to ensure that sufficient aid is provided by our Gulf partners, pressuring some of our European partners, some of our closest friends, and they know who they are, who have not stepped up and 
put forward, uh, the pledge funding or the, or the, um, or the expected funding, uh, ensuring the United States continues to uh, lead the way when it, it comes to these uh, sorts of initiatives, working through the UN Security Council and the UN General Assembly uh, where possible uh, to uh, advance some of the items that uh, you vocalized. Um, opening up channels for NGOs to continue providing uh, assistance, such vital assistance. Be wise in discerning when it comes to our foreign military sales decisions on this committee of jurisdiction, rather than as a matter of course, sort of agreeing with whatever administration might be in charge or not dedicating sufficient time and scrutiny uh, to those sales. Um, and looking for opportunity, looking for lines of opportunity to apply that pressure on the Houthis. We will identify moments. We will identify pressure points. They may not be clear to us right now, but they will emerge, and we have to uh, be looking for them. Again, working uh, by, with, and through partners and allies. So I just thank you all for your dedicated, tireless, and passionate service. And uh, with that, Mr. Chairman, I commend you for, uh, uh, for chairing this uh, most informative subcommittee hearing. Uh, thank you. I, I'm going to ask one final question to ask uh, Ms. Grande to close us out, and, and, and that's to just point us forward. Let's leave on an optimistic note uh, that we can create the conditions through U.S. diplomacy and Mr. Lenderking's efforts to arrange for a ceasefire and that we are in a discussion uh, about what a political framework looks like um, for the future of uh, Yemen. This is not impossible. Um, there are all sorts of signs that this uh, is something that can be uh, achieved. And so just give us a, a, a sense of you know, what that framework can look like if a nationwide ceasefire is achieved. Who would be part of these negotiations. Is there a sort of practical outline that we can identify uh, about what Yemen may look like five years from now if we're able to get beyond uh, this emergency? Um, that's a really good question and a really difficult one to answer because the working um, approach to the national reckoning or national dialogue is that the people who have taken up arms are the ones who have to sit at the table. Of course, that's obvious, and yes, they should. But I was very pointed in my comment in saying that there's something really nasty about allowing the future of Yemen to be in the hands of the elites who have destroyed the country and brought misery. I think there are also, um, there is a perverse incentive in that formula. If you want to get to the table, how do you do it? You take up arms. And we see this in a number of political forces who are looking at the table, want to join it, and have staked out a position now that is far more militarized, securitized than it would have been before because of that perverse logic. So how do you change that? You start a process right now, a pre-dialogue, where all of the political representatives, all the parties that have aspirations to represent the will of the people sit at the table and the military folks sit at the table and you put the women's groups and the youth groups and 
You put the tribal leaders, who all throughout this crisis have been stepping into the void created by the breakdown of judicial systems and provided adjudication and community justice. Put them at the table. Bring in the intelligentsia, the private sector that's going to have to rebuild the country. Put all of those people in the table now. This is something that the special envoy hinted at. And you set a direction for the future one that will be involving all of the components of civil society and the military and the political components in a way which can be fruitful and forward-looking. That would be a start. Uh, it's why I included in my question uh, a query as to who should be at that table because uh, that determines what the table talks about right. and what the result of that conversation is. I think an important expectation to set uh, a hopeful one that we can get to that conversation. Uh, thank you for testifying both to you uh, and to the special envoy. We appreciate your insights and recommendations to the committee. The record is going to remain open for uh, questions for the record until Friday at 6 p.m. And with that, this hearing will conclude.